The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. And you know what we're going to do this time? Irregardless. That word that supposedly isn't a word. Why isn't it a word? And what must our judgment of that be if we, as I always say, pull the camera back? Well, let's talk about irregardless, because we can learn a lot from it, including how to love our language more. And so, what you hear is that it should be regardless, regardless of the fact that the light never turned green, dot, dot, dot. But instead, so often, people say irregardless, and that's supposed to be too repetitive. You don't need the ear, because that makes it negative when less was already doing it. So, irregardless is redundant, and therefore it's wrong, it's sloppy, it's not necessary. A more elegant language would just keep it as regardless. And you know, that might be true, but there is always that factor. There's that certain kid, I call it the Ken Golden factor because of one that I happen to know. There's this kid in fifth grade who everybody starts picking on for no real reason. And that person often, you know, grows up to be shining and successful. But for some reason, everybody started picking on Ken Golden. Well, literally is a Ken Golden. And so is irregardless. Because really, if you roll the dice, it could have been anybody else. It could have been you. And so, for example, what's an uprising? Think about it. Isn't it just a rising? And if you're thinking that an uprising is more specific because it's about people fighting oppression or something like that, how does up connote that in particular? Isn't uprising a little little redundant? Do you mind? Think about it. Somebody says, I'm going to rise up and it might be Jesus or something. Would anybody say, well, what, what do you mean up? Isn't it just rising? Only a certain kind of pedant who you probably aren't. Think about sinking down. Sank down into the dirt. Okay, well, probably wouldn't be dirt, mud. Sank down into the mud. Now, technically, sank into the mud. You don't need the down. But if anything, the down just makes things more vivid. And, you know, life often isn't vivid. And so why can't you stick in the down? Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. From the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts 
or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Something else. By my lights, it's more common lately, but we all know that you have to be careful about that because something you think is lately will turn out to have been thriving in 1925. But to say separate out, we're going to separate these things out from the other ones. What about just separate? Once you've separated them, aren't they already out? And yet there's a usage of out that I've mentioned before in this show that is completely redundant. And yet, if anything, people are doing it more lately, and I see no complaints about it. The point being that we jump on poor Ken Irregardless Golden when, really, Irregardless is just one of many such cases that happens to have attracted a certain amount of attention because of the alignment of the planets one day. But we don't have any problem with one and the same, with each and every. No problem at all. It's just some big thing with Irregardless. Or about this. As I have mentioned before, I'm making my way through this massive rock of a book of Gotham about the history of New York City, and you start finding the archaic language, and it's always interesting. Not long ago, I found that word expatiate that I said was not a word, and it turned out to certainly have been not all that long ago, as in in the early 1800s. Well, same thing. Here is um, Walt Whitman. It's the 1840s. He's writing for a magazine. And listen to him in a certain passage. This is him. During that long and dreary winter, I made my preparations for quitting my home forever. Ooh, ooh, Mike, do me a favor. Put that kind of crackly thing on this so that it sounds like I'm saying this in the 1840s, and, and then I'll start again. During that long and dreary winter, I made my preparations for quitting my home forever. This was my only decided plan. I determined to become an exile. But beyond that, I had no fixed scheme. I meant to cast myself upon the waves, to be born afar off, and perhaps whelmed beneath them. I arranged all my pecuniary affairs for me. All right, now, what was that? I meant to cast myself upon the waves, to be born afar off, and perhaps whelmed beneath them. Whelmed. You see that word a lot. I see it a lot for some reason in early 1800s stuff when I happen to be going through them for whatever reason. Whelmed. What's that? That's overwhelmed. Whelmed meant overwhelmed. Overwhelmed was quote unquote wrong. Nobody batted an eye. And here we are today. So people said, irregardless, it's redundant. But nobody says, stop saying overwhelmed. Well, why not? Why not go back to whelmed? And it's because there's a general principle here which is that potency weakens. It happens in real life, and it happens with words. And so what has a certain punch today might not tomorrow. And so there's always this churn happening where things are getting spiced up again. It's just constant. So for example, the word amazing. Do you imagine people saying amazing in 1920? Now, of course they did, But do you imagine that they said it as much then as now? If you have a horse sense, maybe from, you know, reading too much old stuff and watching too many old movies that they didn't, you're correct. In the 1980s, amazing jumps. And the reason that it jumps is because it replaces what used to be awesome. Now, we use awesome today, but it's narrowed into a slang meaning in most cases. So you say, oh, that was awesome, like the old Chris Farley routine. Awesome. So it has this kind of teenaged ring, and often you're applying it to something that you wouldn't say is exactly 
awesome. It's often something rather small, and you're exhibiting a certain irony in using it. It used to be that awesome meant awesome. Awesome would say a castle. Awesome would say Sputnik, depending on how you felt about it. But once it kind of narrowed into that, your parents' basement, Chris Farley meaning, well, you needed something else to actually connote, like, and that was amazing. And then the funny thing is that awesome had had the same purpose with awful. Awful now is negative. It's narrowed into meaning something sour, which is very common with words. But awful used to be able to refer to a castle. It filled you with awe. My goodness, this is awful. And you didn't mean anything bad about it. But awful went by the wayside. Awesome took over that meaning. Then awesome becomes Chris Farley. And next thing you know, you have amazing. By the way, I don't mean that Chris Farley himself did it. I'm just using that as an illustration. But next thing you know, you've got amazing. Amazing always puts this little meme into my head. I once had occasion, for reasons I won't bore you with, with being in a tryout production of what was supposed to be a Broadway-bound version of a musicalization of The Prince and the Pauper. I played Lord Hartford, for the record, and there was one song where the two kids who looked just alike meet. This You could tell this wasn't really going to go to Broadway, and partly it was because the songs were a little bit, little bit too direct for any Broadway musical written after about 1910. And I remember that that song that they sang, one of the lines was, Bum, bum, bum. This is so amazing. I can't believe it's true. You look just like me and I look just like you. But I'm bum. <laughs> so that was one of the songs. I have to get that on the record. The Prince and the Pauper. This was way back in the 90s. In any case, because that must have been so unpleasant. Let's have an actual recording by a professional. I'll bet a lot of you have heard this. Psycho We all know David Byrne, that's that's Psycho Killer. And then, of course, there's the Qu'est-ce It wouldn't be the song without the Qu'est-ce Well, that's French for what is this? But if you really parse out Qu'est-ce I mean, it's just a bleeding mess on the page. It looks like some sort of stuttering accident. Qu'est-ce is Qu'est-ce which means, oh, what is this that this is? <laughs> that's what it is. What is this that this is? That's something that just happened, and if you say it quickly, it becomes qu'est-ce Well, that's extremely redundant. What is this that this is? Why do you have to put it that way? And whatever the reason is, why would anybody put up with it? It's redundant. And yet, as we know, the French consider their language to be the most concise, the cleanest, the most cut-glass, elegant language in the world. I don't know, maybe it is, but qu'est-ce is very redundant. Notice that you know, with the David Byrne song, it's dated now in that it presumes that everybody knows at least some French. You know, you're supposed to know that qu'est-ce que c'est means what is this. My sense today is that now you would have to make it something in Spanish. Fashions change in that way as to what the sort of informal lingua franca is. But definitely back then in the 80s, you know, if you didn't know any French, you did know qu'est-ce que c'est and then voulez-vous coucher avec moi. You knew that somehow. So what it's all about is that you've got to keep things going. You've got to spice things up. It is kind of like what you can tell I'm I'm thinking about. And you know who knew? Louis Armstrong. 
And the way that we know that he knew is because he used to make tapes of even casual things going on in his house. And no, not that, but he would make tapes of conversations that he would have with people. And it's interesting because you get to hear people speaking casually at a time when this wasn't something that people did in public when the mic was running as much. And so, for example, here is an actual recording of Louis Armstrong. He's in bed and his wife comes into the room and they're having this randy conversation about how you have to keep the horn percolating. And really, this is a linguistic principle. So let's hear Louis Armstrong talking about this in either the 1950s or the early 60s. Two actual people in his house in the neighborhood of Corona, which is next door to mine, in Queens, in New York. You know that horn comes twice. And you and Joe Blazer. Well, I come pressing in the morning. Yeah. You can tell me what you want. You can run your mouth. You can tell me what you want. All in place. That's what keeps your ass happy. You keep my ass happy. All ain't percolating. I ain't in the mood to fuck with nobody. You so it's up to you to keep the horn percolating. Turn your table. In fact, ra erase off some of that shit. Oh, you get nervous, man. I ain't getting nervous, but you ain't, you know, you, you ain't got no better That's sense than pastility. So you've got to keep the horn percolating, and he understood that. That is the actual people. I, You know, the house is now a museum. I've been there. It is quite charming. I have probably been in the room where that recording was made. In any case, notice that his wife says at one point, erase off some of that shit. So there are two things about just that humble sentence. Erase off. Now, technically, that's redundant. Would you tell her? I mean, <laughs> really, she's just talking. It could be erase some of that shit because, you know, once you erase it, the offness comes for free. But in actual speech, the concepts come in a line. You're thinking of the offness. What she means is get that off of the tape in, in case somebody is listening to it on something called a podcast in 2021. So erase off some of that shit. That's how we talk. That's why you get an uprising. That's why you get irregardless. And then notice she says, shit, speaking of shit, there is a certain book. I forget what it's called, Nine Nasty Words. I forget who wrote it, me, but it is out now. And I can't help suggesting that you consider going to your friendly bookseller or pressing your friendly book button and checking it out. You can either read it or you can hear it. And if you hear it, it is read by me. And it's all about profanity. It's not nine words. That just sounded good. It's really 12 words. And you heard about it here today. And because of that book, to help get us into the mind of considering making it part of our lives, profanity actually helps with this lesson. So, for example, in the book, of course, you know, I talk about damn. I talk about shit. I talk about ass, right? But if you think about how the language is actually used, how we actually use those words, all of that is kind of tidying it up a little bit. Because really, damn is nice, but goddamn is better and often more common. You know, I would usually not just say damn. That's a little little old and it's a little weak. If I'm going to use damn, which I don't that much, I would say goddamn. Goddamn. Damn. Well, why? Because the God just spices it up. Damn and hell are particularly weak at this point. So you have to do other things. You know, therefore, bloody hell, God damn, just keeps the horn percolating. Keeps the horn percolating. 
Actually, he said, percolating, percolating. That business of oi for er, that's not just Brooklynese white people in 1920. That's also deep south. You hear it with black people and white people. Percolating. You have to keep the horn percolating. And so, goddamn. Or for shit. Why bullshit? Why that particular animal? Horse shit. It's always about the farm. What is it? It's just because shit is old and kind of weak, and so you want to add something. Is somebody an ass? You're going to make an ass of yourself. Notice that that's a little naked. You're just an ass. Notice how you really top it off. Like What you really do is you've got pie, but a lot of you don't want to eat just pie. You want to put whipped cream on it. A lot of you don't want to say just ass. You want to put jack on it. Jackass. See, that's it. There you feel the real click. He's a jackass. But what is the difference between an ass and a jackass? I couldn't say. Why is it called Jack? You can tell the story's going to be something kind of random. Really, it's just that you need something to make ass a little heavier and stronger because it's a very old word. So don't make an ass of yourself. Little prim. Don't make a jackass out of yourself. Hits it right on the head. Or listen to this wonderful clip. From the ever-wonderful Ferris Bueller's Day Off, this is an exchange between the two middle-aged people. This is Jeffrey Jones, the principal, and his assistant, Edie McClurg. And she, in the 80s and 90s, made a point of this business of this bouffanted kind of prim, proper person who all of a sudden is conversant in the Vulgate. And so listen to her talking about various groups of kids. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. (laughs) The dickheads. Okay, why dickhead? Isn't it just dick? Well, dickhead just makes it stronger. Why do you have to talk about that particular anatomical? The reason for that is that it makes it heavier. You're reinforcing what even you know by the 1980s had become an aging usage of the word dick. We talked about the history of that. Or I'm going to have to be careful here. I um, once was a, a son. <laughs> what a strange way of putting it. In any case, my father was talking about an old friend of my mother's. And I'm, I'm in my 20s at this point, And that's when your parents start getting more honest about certain things about people who you knew as Mr. This or Mrs. That when you were a kid. When I was a kid, you were still calling your elders Mr. and Mrs. if they weren't your parents. And so my father said, and he would, you know, it was he liked his nip and he had had some nips. And he said, oh, yeah, I remember her. You know what? She And he used a word for her. He said she was a dyke. What he meant was a, a lesbian. Then he said something I'd never heard. Yeah, she was a dyke. She was a big bull dyke, he said. Now, I'm not going to say that again. But I'd never heard anybody say that. And the thing is, she was not a large person. That term actually was the first one. Talk about nine nasty words. That was near the beginning. It starts as bull diker. And then it shortens to bull dyke, and then you have dyke. But when we're talking about a conversation that took place in the 1990s, why was my father using that term? And, you know, what's interesting is my father grew up in Philadelphia, and these terms are first attested in exactly Philadelphia. It's interesting. But why he was using reinforcement, what he meant was, you know, she is this, And then he's speaking colorfully. And so then he adds this thing on because that's also available. Somebody, he was born in 1927, so he still knew that term. I don't know whether it's it's current now. Our profanities, 
are reinforced in that exact same way. Or listen to this. This is from one of my favorite musicals. This is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels from the mid-aughts. This is the wonderful David Yazbek. I did a whole one of these episodes where I played only songs from his shows. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is so clever and so tuneful and so spot on that you might like it even if you don't like musicals. In any case, this is actually one of the weaker songs. It's a routine rather than a song meant to be listened to alone. This is um, Sarah Gettlefinger singing Oklahoma. Now listen to a little something when she reveals that she's not exactly a respecter of animals. the tang of that line is the little fuckers. And that's partly because if you think about it, there's a bit of us that wants to make it motherfucker. And motherfucker starts out with a literal meaning, but it loses it quickly. Almost never when you use that word are you talking about incest. It's just that it makes fucker more powerful by making the word longer. This is a general principle. There's a likeness between, of all things, irregardless and motherfucker. And if you like your motherfuckers, then you have to keep your irregardless. In any case, you know, if you go to slate.com slash lexicon plus, then you can get something called Slate Plus. And what's that? You see the ads for it, and it looks like it's just, you know, Slate trying to make itself sound better. It's like Slate is doing reinforcement by saying Slate Plus, and you're thinking plus what? But no, it's a very special program. It means that you could be listening to this without it stopping for ads, read by me or anybody else, and you would get more show. I'm going to say Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I'm John McWhorter, and then that's all you get. But you could get a little more, and who knows? It might be about profanity, might be about any number of things, but you can't know. It's not available unless for a nominal fee. You get your Slate Plus, and that means that on all of Slate's podcasts, you get a little extra thing at the end, and you don't have to listen to any ads. And in addition, we have a little program right now. Just for the first month, Slate Plus is just $1. And you get whole extra episodes of Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. So just think about it. If I weren't working for Slate myself, I would get Slate Plus because then I wouldn't have to listen to the ads. And then I would get the little extra, you know, 60s, 70s sitcom tag at the end where I could get more Slateness. This reinforcement is a general principle. Irregardless is just an illustration of something that happens in all languages all the time. And so, you know, regard. That word's a little bit opaque. You know, regard. It's one of these words that we get from French. And, you know, really the word is look. Regard. A little, little distant. And so when you say regardless, 
Well, because there's a part of us that doesn't quite know what a regard is when we have other things to think about. Regardless doesn't feel as lessy as it could because you don't know what's being lessed. So regardless, you just have to think of it as a chunk. And so it's one thing to say witless. You don't have any wit. Okay, but regardless, what is it? It felt like it needed some reinforcement. And so irregardless didn't feel redundant because regardless felt like it was just one chunk because regard is so weird. And so you don't quite feel like it's a word about there being less of something. What it means is that as always, a lot of what is now is based on some shit that happened then. And there's a story that the word irrespective had something to do with this, that irregardless is a blend of irrespective and regardless. And there may be something to that, but irrespective is a highly formal word that not everybody has exactly on the tips of their mind, so to speak. And the truth is, irregardless could very easily have happened, even if there never was a word irrespective. Largely, we're talking about the fact that we're always reinforcing in ways that are, in the strict logical sense, redundant, but language is never, just like people are never, strictly logical. So this is a general principle. You see it happening all the time. So, for example, a little bit more profanity. I'm, and this time, I'm, I'm not doing it because of the book. It's because this really is important. You go back to a musical like, um, don't worry, I'm not going to play anything from it, partly because I can't, because it wasn't recorded. A musical like Follow the Girls. This is a musical mainly aimed at soldiers during World War II who are in New York for you know some time on the town. Loud, crude, stupid show. Follow the girls. Jackie Gleason was in it before television, and he was playing a Jackie Gleason-esque character. And the big joke with the Jackie Gleason character was that something would happen, and he would smack his head and say, what the hell? That was one of the big jokes in Follow the Girls. Now, what the hell? We all know what that means, but notice that nowadays it almost feels like not cursing. To curse, we say, what the fuck? Now, what the fuck makes no literal sense in itself. You can't parse it out. It's just that hell got replaced by fuck because fuck is stronger. So what the fuck? And today, listen to people under maybe about 35, and it's becoming what the shit which starts as being funny, but it's becoming just a new expression because what the fuck got old? There's this constant reinforcement. So what the hell, 1944, what the fuck, quite vivid and, you know, hot peppers when I was in college in the early 80s, what the shit was almost inevitable later. That's how these things go. Always the reinforcement. And often you reinforce and then the old part wears away, and then you have to have reinforcement again. And so, for example, Old English, I can't sing, was, ich ne kon singen. So, ich, I, ne, not, kon singen, can sing. Ich ne kon singen. Notice, not, no, not. It's not, I cannot sing. It's, I know can sing. But to reinforce it, to say, I really can't sing shit, if that's what you wanted to say, then you would say, Ich ne kon nacht singen. Nacht is now not. So I can sing nothing. I really can't sing a thing. After a while, the little no, the ne, wore off. And next thing you know, you have, Ich kon nacht singen. You don't see that on paper, but that's where we get... I cannot sing. So for a while, it was just, I know can sing. 
Then it's I no cannot sing. Then it becomes I cannot sing. Here we go. And so today we might want to reinforce it. I cannot sing a thing. I cannot sing, for example, shit. We're reinforcing it again. And who knows where that's going to go? All of that is perfectly natural, as natural as in that clearest of clear languages, French. Many of you were probably thinking of it. And so French has this ne and the pa. I don't walk. Je ne marche. No, that's archaic. Because you have to say pas. Je ne marche pas. I don't walk. Don't. Why is French like that? Well, you know, as always, there's a story. And so, it used to be in French, you can imagine, it made sense at first. You just take it from Latin. What it is, is I no walk. Je ne marche. And you just leave it there. And because you're medieval, you drop dead. That's all that there was. But you could reinforce it. Pa meant step. So, I no walk a step. I'm not going to walk a step. I'm going to stand right here and drop dead of the plague. And so, je ne marche pas. Now, that was just one thing, because it could be, I'm not going to drink a drop. Je ne bois goutte. I'm not going to drink a drop. I'm not going to eat a crumb. Je ne mange me. There was a whole series of those. I can't see even a little pinpoint. Je ne vois point. Okay. Well, the thing is, you keep doing that year after year, decade after decade. New people are born after the plague, etc. And it stops being strong. So je ne marche pas might not mean I'm not going to walk a step anymore. It might just now mean I'm not going to walk. That means that you have redundancy. You know, a lot of us learned in textbooks where it's je ne marche pas. And so you have this kind of headphones on the verb. Why do you need the two pieces? It doesn't seem to make sense. It's because it began as reinforcement. And then, of course, today you learn that in real French, you say je marche pas. And so now in the spoken language, you can't even tell about this reinforcement process because it's now just gone back to zero, except with a different word. This is just the way it goes. French is handy with this general process. And so, for example, that is love. That is the love. Okay, the way (laughs) it's mid-20th century caricature French, I'm sorry. But that's love. Ça, c'est l'amour. Ça, c'est l'amour. You could say, c'est l'amour. That's love. A little little weak. Really, the way they would say it is, ça, c'est l'amour. That is the love. That's how you say it. Now, if you say ça, C'est l'amour. What you're saying is that, that is love. It's the most elegant way of saying it, ça c'est l'amour, but it's quite redundant. Nevertheless, ça c'est l'amour, that, that is love. That business of starting with one thing and calling attention to it, and then actually appending your full sentence afterward. In linguistics, this is called topic comment, topic hyphen comment. That's French. Ça, c'est français. That, that's French. That's how you do it. And yet it's quite redundant. Irregardless, the French think of it as the most wonderful thing in the world. And then you can even zero in. It's like you've got a microscope. I bought my girls a microscope and we now we can't figure out what to look at. If you have any suggestions, I got all these slides. And, you know, they have some slides where, you know, butterfly scale or something. But that, that gets old. What are we going to look at? Because you can't look at language on the actual slide. In any case, it's a wonderful microscope. I can't wait to really use it. But what are we going to look at? What I'd like to look at is say one word in French, like ça. 
So what's what's sa? Where did that come from? Did that come from some Latin word satulus? <laughs> no, it came from Latin eke ile ilac. If you say eke ile ilac enough times, die of the plague a few times, and come back to life, then eke ile ilac comes out as sa. I kid you not. And what did eke ile ilac mean? That meant that there. It was kind of redundant if you think about it, because if it's that, where else would it be? Here? You can't say, oh, that here. No, if it's that, then it's over there. By definition, it's not here. Eke le ilak, which sounds like some digestive disease, becomes sa. And so that's redundant. And then you have sa c'est l'amour, and that's redundant again. And yet this is French, which is supposedly the perfect language. You know, there is a song called that. And because it's time for a song here, let's listen to some lesser Cole Porter. Porter kind of loses it at the end for various reasons. This is 1957. This is Lay Girls. That movie is about as good as that sounds. This is Tyna Elg, who was Finnish, for the record. And if there's one song that I like in Lay Girls, at least a little bit, it is Sa Se L'Amour. And the reason I'm playing it is because this is how I figured out that real French does this. I first saw this in the 80s, and I thought, notice how Porter, who knew his French very well, has her saying, not Se L'Amour, Sa Se L'Amour. I thought, yeah, that's idiomatic, isn't it? And I didn't know what topic comment was at the time. But you learn things. So this is Gene Kelly and Tyna Elg in a boat, and she is lip-syncing Sasse L'Amour. She did sing, but you can tell that it was just playing on the set. And when to your delight he loves you in return Sasse L'Amour Then dawns a dreary day darling goes away and all is over you are sure but oh when he returns and loves you as before you take him in your lonely arms and want him even I've always had this silly little mental meme because, you know, French spelling isn't as bad as English is, but it does suck. And I was imagining some poor person who has no way of knowing that you don't pronounce French the way it's written and looking at Sasse L'Amour on the page and thinking that it's Ca Quest L'Amour and then going in and auditioning and singing the song Ca Quest L'Amour. Anyway, I'm sharing too much on this show. I'm sorry. Redundancy is a general concept. In linguistics, it's everywhere. Linguists talk about redundancy. And so if you see something like irregardless, you know, what we think it redundancy. It's just part of how things go. And so when you're reinforcing in this kind of way, what you're doing is you're making the language redundant. And the thing is, all language is redundant to a point. For a language to actually index human cognitive 
quests for vividness. There's going to be some redundancy. And what I mean by redundancy is the sorts of things which otherwise we don't see as wrong at all. And so, for example, think about Spanish. We've been using a lot of French on this show, and most people know Spanish these days. Spanish, the White Houses. So, the Houses Whites is the way you say it. Or really, it's like, thes Houses Whites. Las That's the plural definite article. If it was just one house, and it's la casa, las casas blancas, las casas blancas. Isn't that kind of redundant? Why do you need it so often? Everybody would know what you meant if you said las casa blanca. It would be quite clear. Wouldn't that be quote unquote better? And you know, there are dialects of Spanish or to jump over to Portuguese. You know, so as casas blancas. I don't know where I'm getting that enunciation, but I have to make it different from Spanish, and I've never come up with a Portuguese voice yet. So let's have it be that. As casas brancas. Okay. Now, if you listen to many people in, for example, Brazil, then the way that you would say as casas brancas is as casa branca, as casa branca. I know what this is. I think I'm thinking about Carmen Miranda. Okay, I'm going to keep thinking about her. So, as casa branca. So, you just say as, and that's the plural, as casa branca. And that gets it across fine. But of course, that's considered slangy. That's considered to be something different than what's on the page, which is as casas brancas, or in Spanish, las casas blancas. Well, you know, if it's wrong to get rid of the redundancy, then I think we've really got a problem. It means that we kind of like redundancy when we just haven't been taught to treat it like poor Ken. So, our moral. If irregardless isn't a word, then either is uprising or overwhelm. And it's just overdoing it to say bullshit and what the fuck. And Spanish speakers need to just say Las Casablanca and be done with it. And of course, the answer to all of that is what the fuck. And it means that irregardless is really just fine. And you know, let's go out on this song from 1974. This is Billy Preston singing. It's called Nothing from Nothing Leaves Nothing. I remember this song. I remember sitting in some probably shamefully gas-guzzling car, listening to it in the back seat and loving it. It's funny how memory distorts. I remember there being a female chorus behind it, but no. And, you know, the title, Nothing from Nothing Leaves Nothing, that seems like it somehow pertains to the subject of this episode, but if you think about it, it doesn't. I just like it. And so this is the sort of thing you would hear getting motion sick because you were trying to read in the back seat of that car back during the time when Richard Nixon was resigning. Nothing from nothing. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You gotta have something if you wanna be with me. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You gotta have something if you wanna be with me. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out. Go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. You know, I was on Bill Maher, I have to tell you, and it was fun. I could not help saying that. They even gave me mango madness snapple in the green room. I said the one thing that I would want if I could be picky, if I could be kind of the J-Lo as I want mango, and they actually gave it to me. I'm still vibrating about that. Anyway, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. Nothing from nothing leaves nothing